I'm Jimmy Alexander, and welcome to Out With Jimmy. It's the podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with you. And the goal is to make sure whether you're in the closet or out, you know you're not alone. And I'm asking you, if you listen to Apple Podcast, A, thank you. B, have you subscribed? And, and am I at D? I think I'm at D. D, have you written a review? Please, I beg, I ask. Write a review and give us as many stars as you possibly can. This week, Justin is out with Jimmy. My name is Justin Schmitz. I am from originally Wisconsin. Uh, now I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, I am a sound designer and composer for the theater community here in Washington, D.C. Um, I am a gay man. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, unless I'm in drag. And then my pronouns are she, her, hers. Yeah, loving, loving the out life. Justin's a buddy of mine. And I love Shirley Nature. Now, Shirley Nature is your alter ego. She is one of the many alter egos. And you can find Shirley Nature on Instagram. Yeah, you can find Shirley Nature at Mama Nature, M A M A N A Y T C H, uh, or on Facebook, Shirley Nature, S H I R L E Y N A Y T C H. Um, she's a big broad. She loves the world of cooking, sewing, cleaning, the 1950s. And the uh, modern world uh, today. Uh, uh, uh. I would imagine that Shirley probably uh, liked Paula Dean. That a lot of the recipes, Paula you know, Dean, like Paula Dean, she does love a good stick of butter. Uh, <laughs> but she really identifies more with Julia Child. Like oh, that, that wow. classy Americana okay. and French cuisine uh, sticks very well. I love the dresses that you pick for Shirley because it reminds me of how Lisa Lampanelli, comedian, and she would have just filthy. I mean filthy language, but she wore the most 50s dresses that took the edge off. See, this is the thing with, that people don't realize. Like, if as long as you look stunning and everyone finds you visually appetizing, you can literally murder anybody. Uh, 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 they can uh. even slay them down and everyone's like, oh my God, did you see how great she looks? And I'm like, of course I did. I wore it. Like, Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, Ted Bundy. Oh, how, rest in peace, Ted Bundy. Well, how women would go to court to visit him and even watching the Netflix thing about Ted Bundy. They were like, oh, but he was so handsome. And it's like, no, no, he's... I mean, that's a different era, too, right? Like, everyone decides that it. what we're missing in today's society is good looks. What we're going to court with is pajamas, sweatpants, and a prayer. Well, you know who I blame? I blame TSA for that. Well, you it used know, to be see a day. something, say something. Well, I'm saying something officially. <laughs> it used to be a day when you would go to the airport. When I was a little boy, I grew up in North Carolina, but my family was in Connecticut, so at Christmas and, and during the summer, we'd fly to Connecticut. And my mom would make sure I had a, a tie and a little jacket on, and now the only tie you have is around your sweatpants. See, you know what's funny? And this is, what a great comment. Uh, so I work at the Kennedy Center quite often, and we I work for the Theater for Young Audiences quite a lot. And when we see the little kids coming in, they're all decked out in their nines. They are like tuxedos and dresses, and they look fabulous. We just took a show to Charlottesville, Virginia, and the kids that were there were like definitely just regular, like wearing their jeans and little like tops, and it was cute. But I was like, wow, what a difference this is between the two worlds. Like there's the prestige aspect of walking into a certain place. Yes. And then there's like, we're going to go see a show. It's totally fine. Gotta go live our little lives. Uh, well, Justin, it, it even even, and I'm sure you're like me. You're Catholic. Yeah, born and raised. And the funny thing is, Catholics have the most beautiful, opulent cathedrals. You are not joking. They're stunning. Like, stunning. They take your breath away. But people dress like bums when they go in there, and it's like you see kids. They haven't brushed their hair. Parents are just trying to get in there. 
but if you go to some more uh, modest churches, they're in suits and ties. Yeah. And I'm like, how funny is the difference there? Well, you know, this is the thing. Like, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I, for the longest time, I grew up, so I grew up in Wisconsin, and in the summers, like, we didn't have time to go home, shower, change, and go, like, make ourselves completely over. You're too busy working the fields. You're busy working all summer, doing everything. And Am I wrong in hearing that you were a corn-fed farm boy? Corn-fed, corn-fed farm boy who grew up on the beef world. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not just a beefcake. Yeah, well, that's more than fair. I grew up with the beef world. So, so yeah. you know, like, we didn't, you didn't always have time to, like, go home and change so quickly. So you would go to church, like, in your farm clothes or one step above farm clothes and you just walk into church and you're like, all right, great. Armada Padre Spiritu Sancti, here we go. And by the time you're done with it, you're like, okay, great. Now what? Oh, you go home to chores. Yes. And it was so interesting that like the city people who would have an issue with you coming to church in your farm clothes because they're like, oh, you didn't have time to clean up. And you're like, I'm worshiping God right now. Like there's something more uh, of an issue if you have an, if you have an issue with somebody's clothing as opposed to the fact that they're just like sitting there doing their thing. I heard a deacon say that God doesn't care what you have on just as long as you're there. That part, right? That part. And that's the Show important up. thing. Absolutely. Now, Justin, this is normally the first question I ask uh, on Out With Jimmy. Who's the first person you looked at and you said out loud, I'm gay? Oh, my gosh. So this is, I will never forget this for as long as I live. It was actually my girlfriend at the time back in high school uh, her name was Becky Hobson, and she she and I were dating for, like, nine months straight. And I sort of had told her, I was like, you know, I sort of wonder, like, what this is like or what that's like with a guy. And she looked at me one day, and she looked at me, and she goes, are you sure you're not gay? And I said, well, I don't know what that means. And she, you know, we sat down, we talked about it for a good few minutes, and she's like, maybe perhaps this is actually what is really going on. And her mom, Shirley, uh, Mama Shirley, like talk to me and she goes, honey, I think that you are probably gay and you just don't understand what that concept is yet. And from there, like, I is she who you named? Yeah. So my drag, my drag character, um, I originally was just mom and H and that was, that was how it was. And Facebook was like, you can't, your first name can't be mama. And I was like, well, this is, this is not cool. Tell Vicky Lawrence that. Took Hello. A, exactly. So I was like, well, I need a first name. And immediately the first person that popped into my mind was Shirley. Um, she died of ovarian cancer mm. two years ago and I called Becky and her sister Amanda, who are basically my sisters now in life. And I said, Hey, I want to use your mom's name. Is that okay? And they both were like, yes. Oh my God. She would have loved that. That's like exactly her thing. And she was, Shirley was the person who like forced me to be comfortable with the idea that I needed to leave Wisconsin to get to the life that I'm at right now. How old were you when you left Wisconsin? I was, well, the first time I like left left was 20. I went, I moved to London for three years. For, what? For grad, for undergrad. Um, I did a study abroad for three Apparently years. somebody was studying in the Midwest there, Wisconsin. Um, what was yeah. that like? Moving to London and yeah. like going, it was intimidating. It was scary. London or Wisconsin, like I like to say is basically like Lord of the Rings, like the Shire. It is safe. It is comfortable. Everyone knows everybody. Everyone is very familiar with everybody. Everyone knows everyone's story. And everyone's out to help each other. And the second you leave that incubator and you leave that nest, it's terrifying. It's very scary. And I loved every second of it. London was an incredible opportunity to explore who I was, to find a community, to find the theater industry at large in that world, to study and see so many different uh 
facets of life. You know, Justin, it, it mentioned how important, obviously, theater is. It's your life. Yeah. Um, your bread, your butter. But going to London, Broadway's one thing, but being in the West End had it's to be amazing for you. I mean, the history there of yeah. theater. Yeah. I mean, we so I studied, I we went to New York in high school as a little trip, and I couldn't identify with it. Like, I had these dreams that, like, I was moving to New York when I got out of high school, and it was this going to be this wonderful thing. And I just never identified with it as much. And I, when I got to London, I started to realize that like their way of life really matched what I was used to. And it was a chance to learn from all of these different museums that have collections that are based on, uh, on theater, but also like history and the history of Europe, which is very fascinating to me. Um, but it also, there's a different model for the way that theater is produced there. Um, it is very much a collection of, Everyone works nine to five and they figure out what the stories are in five days um, over the course of six weeks. Whereas here in the American theater model, we have three weeks and you work six days a week for at least eight hours a day and you plug it all together very quickly. Um, where the the British version of theater, you have a chance to explore a lot more. You have a lot more risk taking that you can do. And what I really love seeing right now, um, a lot of American directors are starting to branch into that model of the European method for uh, production of shows. They are starting to go, we need to explore this more. We need to start understanding what's going on better. We need to start asking more questions. We need to start allowing other people in the room to facilitate a broader conversation. As a sound designer, I'm rarely asked to weigh in on, like, what does this whole show look like? Or what does this whole show mean um, in terms of your life? And the, the most rewarding experiences I found in the industry are when designers are asked to come to the table immediately and be welcomed with any response that they so choose. Explain, Justin, and I promise we'll get back to normal, uh, asking him about him being a homosexual, but um, explain what a sound designer does. Yeah, so anytime you go to a show, um, anything you hear at a production, I essentially have to create, control, or facilitate you hearing. Whether that's an actor's voice coming through microphones, whether that's music coming through a sound system, whether that's a dog barking off stage so it sounds like it's in the distance, if that's composing music, um, if I mean, there's so many pieces to it, right? Like in a musical, I really focus on the overall musical sense of what is being produced by the live band, by the orchestra singers, um, by offstage singers, by the crew, you know, and facilitating all of those conversations that are happening. Um, but it's also... In straight plays, uh, straight plays are what we would consider non-musical. Um, it's facilitating, is there music here? Is there a sense of different world? Is there a drone that needs to happen underneath an underscoring? Is there sound effects that need to happen? Does somebody have to knock or get a doorbell so that somebody comes in the house? Is there a phone call that suddenly changes the entire play? And if any of those technical elements don't happen, suddenly the play stops, mm -hmm. you know, and that's that's all my job uh, facilitating what those pieces are. It's a lot of research. It's a lot of understanding of certain eras and time frames, but it's also, you know, facilitating rehearsals early. I often I'm sound is the weird one where you bridge a gap from early first rehearsals to technical rehearsals. So first rehearsals are usually the actors are in a separate rehearsal space and they're creating the piece you'll see after technical elements are added, and the whole production. And sound is the weird one where, like, we're sort of in from the beginning and go all the way straight through because you can rehearse with some version of sound early, whereas you can't rehearse with lights early, 
right? Like mm-hmm. the lighting elements are only going to be available in the theater. Yeah. You know, and certain little technical elements are only going to be available in the theater. But sound is that weird one where you get to like actually jump in early and be a part of conversations early. Um, and what I love is when a director wants to just flourish a piece with sound. Um, I'm currently doing that with Thumbelina over at Imagination Stage. Um, and it it is a chance where we're telling a brand new version of Thumbelina but it's a lot of it is through um, a Japanese style of storytelling. So they're doing different camera angles. Uh, they're doing uh, like placards. They're doing um, sound storyscape telling, and it's it's very imaginative. And like I'm flourishing because yeah. of that. It's funny as my, my background, obviously radio. There's so many things that I would do on the Jack Diamond show. Mm-hmm. I had a, um, a piece of uh, equipment called the Instant Replay. And it's a hard disk recorder. It was like this little box and it would have like 50 different buttons, but there could be a thousand different pieces of um, of uh, sound audio in it. And anytime we talked about Metro, you had made sure you would hear the ding, ding. And in fact, I'll play it right now. That. And those little things make such a big difference. And I would joke, I call them the gimmicks. Yeah. Because they really make a difference, especially, and a lot of times... It helps to uh, propel the show forward without having to explain to the audience whatever. Yeah, you know it because you hear that one second yep. clip. Yep. Um, a lot of what I do in sound design is is asking an audience to emotionally recall what's being uh, produced on stage, whether that's music, whether that's you know sound effects like that. Um, and what's fun is like when you have shows that are really super open to interpretation. I do a lot of what you would do with a hard disk recorder. We call it a sampler. Um, and you just load up all of the different sounds you possibly can, and you make sure your operator knows what each button will do. And you're like, all right, have fun. Like, and that's that's fun. Well, the sad thing for me is when I would be out uh, from work, I wasn't out often, but I'm not a speller. So it would always mm. like, how did Jimmy spell this? And there would be issues. Now let's get back to you in yeah, London. Yeah. You're 20 years old, Wisconsin boy. You're in London yeah. with the worst food in the world. Ugh. <laughs> Um, pies in London. Uh, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and I love baked beans. I love, love baked beans. Cold baked beans for breakfast. Don't get. Can See, you, I loved it. Can I, you warm those son of a bitch up? I mean, oh no, no, no. You got to have a cold bean with like a side of like bangers and mash. And those, that bacon over there. My God. Well, you know, it's like, it's like Canadian bacon. It's like yeah. real bacon. Let's, right? bullshit. <laughs> I, Canadians are not fooling anybody. Canadian bacon ain't bacon. It's ham. Just say it. I don't pull. What's better, Canadian bacon or American bacon? Oh, I think. Are you kidding me? American bacon would win. Or if you're like me, you have both because you can have both because you just need both. I don't. I'm not a fan. But you know, I'll do my first poll. Which is better, Canadian bacon or or real bacon? So, did you? When's the first time you kissed a boy? First time I kissed a boy. Um. God. 19 were you in london no it was when i was we were on a camping trip uh we had taken i bet you were we had taken my family's uh, rv camper out for an extended weekend and it was like five or six of us friends that were like from high school and we had just done our freshman year of high school or of college and we all decided to like go out and do things and like go camping and you know you take alcohol along i don't condone underage drinking however happens things happen um and things, one thing led to another. Who was the boy? 
Oh my God. Uh, a, f- a friend. Was he a straight boy? Because, you know, I say straight men are the gay man's kryptonite. So this is the thing. I I think he is straight still. Good for you. Uh, it's questionable. What's funny about drag shows, I've noticed, is when straight men, and I always applaud oh, straight God. men, and I tell women, you married the right guy if, if he's willing if he to come If he goes here. to a drag show, yes. ladies, he's, he's the one for you. Yes. Like, oh my God. But I do notice that Men still like being flirted with, even oh, if it's a drag queen. Boots down. Are you yeah. kidding me? Oh, my God. My favorite thing as a drag queen is pinpointing the straight men of the crowd, right? And you know, you know, when you walk out and you just like, you hit that door, right? And you like, you lock eyes with that man and you're just like, all right, game on, princess. And they look at you and they're like, oh, shit. Oh, God. Here, here oh, she comes. Oh, here she comes. <laughs> and like, I'm a 450 pound, six foot six person <laughs> in a full wig, in a full dress, looking like the only full-fledged woman at a drag gig. How tall are you in the heels? Six foot six. Uh, that's what yeah, I'm six foot four out of a heel. I'm, I tried a six-inch yes. heel one time, and a, a seven foot was just too tall. Yeah. There's centrifugal force that happens on your on your ankle. And, yes. You know, when you shattered both, it's it's not great. And you don't want... There's stuff could be on the floor. You could slip. I could you be know. on the floor. No one <laughs> wants to <laughs> see me <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> so there you are. You're in the campsite. Yeah. You're kissing a guy. Yeah, I mean, it was like a kiss. It was an innocent kiss. And and we were both like, did you like it? And he was like, I don't know. And then I was like, same. Ugh, this yeah. is awkward. Pull the covers up and like hope for the best. And just like, well, there's shame there. Well, it happens. It happens. Uh, um, some of the best moments are shame afterwards. No, but um, so let's go back to um, London. Yeah. So did you ever have a fellow over there, a special? No, I, so when I went to London, I was like, Full on research and studying. Um, there were there was plenty of eye candy. I mean, hello, it's London. Like, yeah. there's eye candy galore. Um, but I I really stuck to my studies when I was over there. I was on three undergraduate research grants to study LED lighting technology, to study theater, to study sound. Um, That's fantastic. It was incredible. Our our undergrad had a really cool motto that if you write a little bit, you'll get a little bit of money. And it was no joke. I got three fully funded undergraduate research grants to pay for all of it. So I made the most out of it. And I would come back and disseminate everything to our group. But it was one of those things that, like, there was a lot to like and a lot to love over there. So you moved back. Moved back. uh, To Wisconsin. Yep. I moved back to Wisconsin. Graduated in 2011 with my undergraduate degree uh, in theater and design. Uh, And then I moved to New York. I had a fellowship uh, with the Orchard Project in New York City. And I lived there for uh, nine months. Um, And I found out that I hated New York City. I couldn't see the sun. And I could not tell what time of day it was. Mm. And I felt claustrophobic. Mm. Um, Plot twist, I'm claustrophobic. So I... it, it was just really overwhelming, and I didn't like it. I moved back to Wisconsin in 2012 for a year. I substitute taught high school and middle school uh, choir and theater. Did you like that? I loved it. I actually i am a teacher by nature, and I absolutely loved it. I miss my high school students every day. Um, I taught them madrigal when I was in undergrad anyway, so I was— I had familiarity with all of my so, Were you Mr. Shu? Were you singing uh, hip-hop songs? It felt like Mr. Shu a lot of the time. Uh, my classroom had music on all of the time, uh, and I let the kids, whenever they wanted to listen to music, we just listened to music and mm-hmm. let them be creative. It was, I think that was one of the things that like really, truly informed who I was as a person, um, was bringing a sense of 
openness and welcoming to kids that weren't necessarily welcomed at the table. Um, as a person, like I'm a very mama type. Mm-hmm. I really want the best for all of my kids and all of my friends and all of my family. And so I gave the kids an opportunity to succeed while I was there. What more could you ask for from a teacher? You know, that? and I think that's what it was. Like I had, I had been given a lot of opportunities uh, when I was in high school to do whatever I wanted. Um, to really be allowed to do technical things in our high school auditorium, to uh, like to be creative. And our teacher never said no. She was just like, yeah, if you want to build a set, go build a set. If you want to direct show choir, go direct show choir. Totally cool. But Let's that, go back to you in high school. Yeah. When do you think you first knew you were gay or thought something's up? I've probably freshman year. I was like 14 or 15. Like I started to like look at a primitive online world of, you know, what it was to look at dating sites or to just look to get outside yeah. of like little tiny town in Wisconsin, which didn't have. Did you know anybody gay? When's the first, well, let me ask it this way. When was the first time you met somebody who was gay? Out and gay. College. Like 2006, 2007. So how old are you at that point? I would have been 17, 18. So you felt probably all alone. There's nobody else like me. There's there nobody, was, I mean, there, yeah. wasn't, there wasn't very many people in my tiny little town. We were a town of 9,000, yeah. right? So, like, there were people that you were suspected of being gay, and people would be like, oh, yeah, that person's a faggot. But, like, what you don't know at that time is what that means. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't grow up being like, oh, that's a, synon- a synonym for, you know, this is a person who's just gay, and, like, that's the way they are. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was hard. I mean, undergrad was my first time ever meeting gay people, but also being allowed to be gay and like be very open and free and like running and safe and safe. You know, and it's also where I met my first trans person. Um, our director of our uh, Rainbow Unity, our um, pride group on campus, uh, was transgender. Is transgendered and um, it was an incredible ally to me as a person growing up and out, right, and and being comfortable with who I was. And they gave me an absolutely incredible sense of, like, you get to be whoever you choose to be from here on out. You're an adult. Was there ever a time when you were mad that you were gay or upset? Um, I think there was, like, early on because I wanted to, I wanted to be like everybody else. I couldn't find somebody to partner with. And it was really hard in Wisconsin, particularly because the the geographic location of people is so spread out. You have a false expectation based on what straight markets do in advertising and in production of mass media, where you see typical uh, heteronormative couples having these really great sweeping moments and you have the Hallmark moment and, you know, she goes running up to the guy and she's like, I've always loved you. And he's like, I finally figured it out, and I love you too. And you're having this whole moment, and like we don't have that. We have tents in the woods. We have tents in the woods, and, and, and I'm talking about in Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, I mean that was we don't have that, and it's funny for people, and we, and I, I I believe that it's never been better for our people ever, no, ever. No. Not it's not perfect. I get that, but it's never been better. But we don't have songs, right? We don't have movies other than a handful. I think what we're seeing right now, especially in the media age, is we're seeing a coming of age in a coming of outing um, where you're seeing artists who are identifying themselves as non-binary. You're seeing people who are more comfortable saying or having songs that are LGBT friendly. 
um, or identifying LGBT relationships in those. And you are seeing a chance for representation that didn't exist. Um, Have you watched Schitt's Creek? Have you heard of this show? I've heard of it, but I've never watched it. Schitt's Creek has Eugene Levy on, who was in American Pie, the father in American Pie. And his son is one of the cast members who plays his son. Mm -hmm. Um, Wait, his actual biological son? His biological son. Oh, that's great. And in it, he plays somebody who's pansexual. And he's, in real life, I believe he identifies as gay. Mm -hmm. But what they did, and the story is this rich family loses everything, and and they bought as a joke this town called Schitt's Creek. Okay. So they go there, move there, and the son wears these tunics and just mm. wild Very stuff. Very flamboyant. Flamboyant. And it's interesting in the show, he kisses this girl and she goes, I thought you liked white wine. And he goes, oh, I, you know, I, I drink both. That was the only thing he ever said. And they asked him why you know, he doesn't come out or anything like that. He goes, because I want this world to be you don't have to. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful mm-hmm. and the way they've done it on that show and handled mm-hmm. it. So thank you to Daniel and Eugene Levy. Um, you were an inspiration, Daniel. So let's talk about your parents. Yeah. How did you tell your parents? Oh, my God. So I, I split told them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told my mom in 2006. Uh, we were driving back to college. She was driving me back from Christmas break. And it was dead silent in the car. And I was sort of like sitting there. I was very, at the time, I was still very connected to my faith life. And I sort of like had a moment where I was like, okay, well, I guess if this is the quiet moment in the car, that's I'm supposed to tell her. I guess this is when I tell her. And I just leaned over to her and I was like, okay, so like you know that, that like I like guys, right? And she's like, what? How do, how do you know? And I said, I think it's very similar to like how you knew that you liked men. Mm. And you just have an inkling and that your body tells you that's what you want and that's what you like. And that's just the way it is for me. Like this is who I like. This is what I want. And she's, Started to cry a little bit, but not like super heavy emotional cry. But she's like, I just want you to be safe. I want you to, you know, have everything in your life that you can have. You know, like if, if you're sure, like that's one thing, but maybe you should think about it and and do some heavy thought on it. And I, I said, well, I have for the last few years, but I'm finding more and more that this is just who I am. And she was like, okay, that's fine. And it took her a little bit to stop being like, so when are you going to get a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Or like, what about this girl? It's what a phase. It's a yeah. phase. It's like your parent has to switch out of that concept of what they've always had constructed for you mm-hmm. since you were conceived. So many times I hear it's more difficult for mom than dad. Well, so it was. It was way more difficult for my mom than it was for my dad. I told my dad um, in 2013, like it took a very long while before I would tell him that I was out and it was mostly but my dad was very religious and I my dad and I have a very good relationship he's been in my court all the time but he was super just like concerned with his religious beliefs and we never had a lot of political discussions we've never had a lot of you know discussions on what it means to be gay or if that's a thing and it was just he's very much a plain this is the way you are that's the way it works type of a person and we were, again, in a truck driving home from a thing. Cars are great places Cars to have Cars are really great places. No one can run away. No yeah. one can run away. Right? You can either pull the car over or they can crash and you're both gone. And you don't have to look at each other. You don't have to look at each other. Someone yeah. has to yeah. pay attention to the road. Yeah. And you're good. So I just sort of sat there. It was 1030 at night. I'll never forget this. It was winter in Wisconsin. We were driving home from something. I'd come home for a break. And I looked at my dad and I said, hey, um, 
I'm self-sufficient now, and I feel like I can tell you that uh, I'm I'm gay. And he goes, okay. And I said, I just wanted to make sure you knew. Mm-hmm. Like, I just wanted to make sure like we were all on the same page and everything was good. And he goes, okay, and kept driving. And it was like silent in the car. And I was like, okay, well, this was the most anticlimactic thing I've ever experienced in my life. And I, you know, here we are. I work in drama and I was expecting so much more. Um, <laughs> so we get home, we've unpacked the car. My parents do catering on the side. So they, you know, we're unpacking all the catering equipment and we got ready to go to bed. The Christmas tree is still lit up in our house. And I remember like walking to my bedroom with a glass of water and my dad's walking to their bedroom. And I said, okay, good night. I love you. And he goes, good night. I love you too. I always have. And I always will. I've never run so fast to my bedroom to slam a door and start sobbing into a pillow than I did that night. I will never forget that for as long as I live because I just like it finally culminated in like releasing all of my concern that I was somebody who was sort of putting up a front, but also was fully open and fully honest about who I was as a person to my parents. Um, and doesn't it make you so happy and proud yeah. that you have those people as your oh, parents? Absolutely. And what's really interesting too is then my adopted brother came out two years ago and brought his partner to Christmas and Thanksgiving a year ago. And watching my parents fully accept his new partner and like fully accept this person into our lives as like their next person, I just sort of sat back and I was like, wow, like I feel like I've lost so much time sharing things with my parents. And in some ways I got jealous of my brother because I was like, you didn't go through the struggle. Like I, I feel like I had gone through so much struggle and identifying myself in our community there, but also like fighting through a lot. Well, you paved the way. I've, well, yeah. They like, made it better for him. And now I feel like I'm sitting here with nothing. But I have. That's not true at it's all. It's not nothing, but it's like, I feel like I don't have a partner. Do you know? Like it's, and what's good about it, what's yeah. good about it is that I don't feel like I need one. No, anymore. you do not. That's the thing. And I, so many, a lot of my friends are younger <clears throat> figure and they whine and complain that, you know, they, and I'm not saying you are, no, that they I'm don't not. have somebody. And I'm like, you're 26. You don't want to get married at 26. Well, that's just it. Like, we're not in an era anymore where you can, where you have to get married at 26. No. Right. Like, our parents' generation was, you functioned at 26, 27. You knew who you were going to get with. And then you you lived a career life for a bit. And you had a, a kid. And as long as they were good and your family was good, you just worked through it yeah. and you were fine with it. And our generation now is battling an identification process where we don't know where we're good. We don't know like when we're good and when it's fine to just be comfortable for whatever the remainder of your life is. I have to tell you this. You are one of the most um, of the people in our community that I know most comfortable in your own skin. It took a long time to get this far. And isn't that a good feeling? You know, what's really interesting is it's only been recently that I have been so comfortable. It took, it. I would probably say that in the last three years is when I finally was like, you know what? I think I'm good. How much does Shirley Nate have an involvement with that? Um, Shirley was like, I think the icing on the cake in a lot of ways. Being able to perform. Being able to perform again. Um, I grew up as a singer, dancer, uh, entertainer type um, I played piano for 20 plus years. I've sang for 15 plus years. And when I decided to go into sound design and composing, 
I shelved a lot of that. Um, I still use those tools, um, but I miss being in front of a crowd. I miss being the center of attention. In That's a drug. Way. It's a drug. It's I a understand drug. that. It's an addict, right? Like you want to be back in front of the crowd. You want to be back in people's hearts and in their minds and, and in front of something. But what ultimately hits me when I'm doing drag is this, the chance for other people to escape for five minutes, the reality that is like our current world or their current world or whatever it is that they're going through. Anytime you see a drag show, I want you to think of this. Take your eyes off the drag queen for a second and look at all the faces watching the drag queen. All smiles, all joy. Mm-hmm. Nothing better than that. Mm-hmm. If you could go back and talk to that corn-fed farm boy from Wisconsin, what advice would you give him? I think it's ultimately uh, that things get better over time through the courage to pursue. Uh, you have to have enough courage and faith to know that it'll get better, that you're not stuck. You have the power to change things if you choose to change them. And it comes from within, right? No one else is going to live your life for you. You have to be willing to change, to be molded, to ask questions, to be open to advice from your friends, from your colleagues, from your mentors, and to be true to that and to stick with it. Um, there are so many times that we, as a, as a group of people forget that there are still people in our world that are our allies who want the best for us, who may not just know how to say it the best way possible. And so often we forget to listen, to learn. We only listen to react. And I think that through listening to learning, um, is where I grew the most. I took a step back and I didn't have an immediate response. I just said, oh, I need to think about that. Um, That was when I succeeded the most in getting ahead and getting forward with my own life, whether out, whether in theater, whether as a person, whether as a drag queen. It all comes down to listening and being open to changing yourself because you ultimately, at the end of the day, aren't the best thing in the world. There's always going to be someone who is better than you, who is always going to be doing more things than you, is going to have a better Instagram fame life. But what it is, if you're living your ultimate truth and you're living who you are as a person, somebody else is going to see you as a beacon of light for another person. And I don't mind being a beacon because light drives out hate. Beautifully said, Justin. If somebody is out there and they want to hire you to do sound editing... Or maybe come to their high school and speak. Yeah. Or advise them somehow. How would they get a hold of you? Uh, email me at J-U-S-T-I-N-S-C-H-M-I-T-Z-T-H-E-A-T-R-E at gmail.com. Say that one more time. J-U-S-T-I-N-S-C-H-M-I-T-Z-T-H-E-A-T-R-E at gmail.com. Thank you, Justin, very much. And thank you for listening to this week on uh, Out With Jimmy. Thank you to Julia Ziegler and WTOP for allowing us to record in these beautiful studios. And remember, you'll never know when the last time you'll be able to tell someone you love them. So go ahead and do it.